smarter, faster, safer, cheaper. Driverless vehicles sound almost too good to be true. So, is there a catch? Hello and welcome to our podcast, Transforming Business with Minter Ellison, ideas and challenges that are shaping our future. Driverless vehicles are fast becoming a reality in countries around the world, including Australia. Motor and technology companies are already spending billions of dollars to make this happen. While we don't yet know how quickly this technology might become mainstream, it's already up and running in several industries. Australian governments are aiming to be ready with new laws this year. Some are predicting that driverless cars will be a major part of our daily life within a decade. And such predictions are influencing government decisions about infrastructure investments and urban planning. But what does this brave new world of driverless vehicles actually look like? Why are these changes so significant for business leaders? And how might this technology transform our cities, our communities and our way of life? To tackle those questions and more, we spoke with three experts in the field. Michael Milford is a professor of robotics at the Queensland University of Technology and a chief investigator at the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. David Pearce is a Minter Ellison partner who advises on major infrastructure projects and the impact of emerging technologies. And Amy Dunphy is a Minter Ellison senior associate who is completing a legal PhD in connected and autonomous vehicles. To begin our discussion, I asked David to explain some of the potential benefits of driverless vehicles. Well, one of the big potential pros is uh, safety improvements. So human error is responsible for around 90% of motor vehicle accidents. And so the promise of driverless cars is they can eliminate human error and we can get rid of 90% of car crashes and save thousands and thousands of lives globally. Um, whether that's going to be a reality or not, we don't presently know. So we'll talk a little bit more about that today. But one of the big pros and why government's so on board with supporting driverless cars is around road safety improvements. Okay, and in terms of cons, anything stand out? Uh, some of the same risks around safety. So um, the ultimate utopia of cars that drive themselves um, with no accidents is where we want to get to. But in the interim phases where you've got motor vehicles with varying levels of autonomy um, and mixed fleets and drivers on the road as well, we may have more motor vehicle accidents. So there's some risks around that. Um, there's also risks around um, the costs associated with the technology and whether it's actually ever going to deliver on the benefits that are being promised. Um, yeah, so there's mixed views on the on the potential upside. Um, one of the other major upsides is around productivity of our road network. So the promise of driverless cars is they can have vehicles moving much more efficiently on the roads, platooning, travelling closer to one another, um, having our roads operate much more efficiently. Um, through autonomous vehicles and also communications technology with roadside infrastructure. So potentially you could get two to three times the improvement out of our existing road networks in the long term. But again, that assumes all vehicles are autonomous and they're all being run and connected in with road networks. And are we ever going to get to that reality? And that's something that Michael will be able to talk to uh, well today. Oh, on that point, Michael, is there anything you'd like to add there? So the ultimate idea with autonomous vehicles is obviously uh, safety, if we can reduce to as close to zero the fatalities and also the injuries. Injuries are just as catastrophic as fatalities uh, worldwide in automotive-related accidents. 
Uh, the big issue with autonomous vehicles is unlike a lot of other technologies, you can't really sort of get halfway there with the technology and deploy it successfully. The bar for safe responsible deployment is very high, very close to the perfection. Uh, humans are amazing drivers and getting a robot car up to that standard is quite challenging. Interesting. So when we talk about driverless vehicles and that can mean lots of things to different people, but what does it actually mean in reality? I mean, are we talking here about driverless cars for individuals? Are we talking about public transport? Are we talking about specific uses in certain industries, uh, Michael? So there are a very wide range of things meant when people talk about driverless vehicles, autonomous vehicles, or self-driving cars. There's a lot of terminology to navigate through. Autonomous vehicles have been operating in off-road environments for a while. Australia, for example, is one of the leaders in autonomous vehicles in mining, uh, where they're already commercially viable and increasing their sort of penetration of the mining market. But most people, when they talk about self-driving cars, Today, they really mean the robot taxis, the cars that drive themselves on the roads. We already are halfway there. We have Teslas and uh, semi-automated vehicles, uh, mostly overseas, but you're starting to see some of them in Australia, but they're very limited. You only use them in certain situations and you have to pay attention. So what most people are thinking of or looking forward to when someone mentions autonomous vehicles is the robot cars that entirely drive themselves. They won't need human supervision, and indeed you may not even be able to intercede even if you wanted to. Michael, can you sort of talk us through the technology behind this in, in fairly simple terms? Like, how do driverless cars actually work? So the basic mechanisms of how a driverless car works is really split into two areas. One is, and you've probably seen photos or videos of driverless cars, they have a stack of sensors uh, festooned all around the car. They have cameras, which they use to recognize things like pedestrians and other vehicles. Uh, They typically have uh, LiDAR sensors, which are a type of sensor that tells you how far away things are in the uh, environment, up to 100 meters or more away, uh, very accurately. And then you have sensors like radar, which you can think of as a last-ditch safety sensor. They're very useful for preventing collisions. And indeed, even in non-autonomous vehicles, you have radar-based collision avoidance systems uh, already in widespread deployment. The other part of the puzzle is the brains that go on board these autonomous vehicles, uh, what you would call, I guess, artificial intelligence for driving. And what we've seen in the last five or 10 years is a a revolution in how this artificial intelligence is implemented. Uh, The technology that most people use heavily is called deep learning. Uh, And that's just a term that means we're using software that tries to mimic at some level the very big networks in our brain uh, to enable the car to drive itself. These are very complex, very hard to understand systems, uh, but also incredibly powerful. So with the caveat that this is perhaps a little way off in terms, in, in terms of its transforming the way we live, nevertheless, you can imagine, if you'll excuse the pun down the road, uh, a world of being quite different, can't you? I mean, it's really transformed the way we're living in society. Yes, and five or ten years ago, I think people hadn't really thought through all the not primary implications of self-driving cars, but secondary and tertiary implications. Uh, People now talk a lot about the fact that if you have autonomous vehicles, uh, you may have far fewer of them, especially if people don't own them. 
And that has all sorts of fascinating implications. You might be able to renovate that extra garage space in your house to become an extra bedroom. Uh, you might be able to reduce the very significant proportion of roadways and indeed parking spots in most urban cities. Uh, and there are literally hundreds of implications, many of them positive, some of them unintentionally negative, uh, which are still to be navigated. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see how we overcome some of those challenges in the future. It's mind-blowing stuff, David, isn't it? It is. So we might see the death of the car park and the rise of the drone park in the next 10 to 20 years. And um, cars are a really underutilised asset at present. So um, 90% plus of the time they're sitting parked. And one of the promises of autonomous vehicles that are platooning around our cities constantly and picking up passengers and dropping off is that you no longer have that requirement for cars to be parked up effectively. It's just a, a continuous system of vehicles moving around cities. And as Michael says, with lesser than potentially. Um, there's also some interesting th theories around um, whether they're going to reduce or increase congestion. Um, so they, they promise to reduce congestion um, by driving more efficiently and potentially taking some cars off the road. But the other thing that you'll get to with self-driving cars is effectively you're, taking, you're turning cars into a taxi service and you're taking the driver cost out of, um, out of the taxi. So potentially if the cost of that comes down and it becomes more attractive for people to use personalised um, autonomous transport in the form of a driverless car, people might jump in them more often and they might choose to live in outer, outer urban environments and commute into the city because they can be sitting in their self-driven vehicle and working or watching movies rather than choosing to transport on, on mass transit or um, not having taken the choice to use a car. So there's, there's mixed theories around whether it's going to reduce or increase congestion in, in the long term. Michael? I think one of the uh, challenges in working out what might happen is the fact there are several issue issues around autonomous vehicles that are often confounded together. So the autonomous vehicle technology uh, is one part of the, the puzzle, uh, but a lot of uh, speculation is around future cities where perhaps private ownership of cars is a thing of the past. And both of those factors, autonomous vehicles and not owning cars, both have significant effects on working out what a city will look like in the future. Mm, tell us a little bit um, more, Michael, about some of the uh, iterations of driverless uh, technology that we are already using in society, and perhaps some of us may not even realise we've used. Sure. So anyone who's bought a sort of upper-end car recently, uh, there's a good chance you will have come across advanced collision avoidance decisions, uh, uh, systems, advanced cruise control systems. And if you have uh, something like a Tesla S, like my brother does, uh, these cars can actually choose an optimal route across the city. On the highway, they can navigate with you supervising it, but with your hands not actually touching the wheel. And they can even now do things like actively change lanes, uh, a favorite pastime of human drivers because they think they can beat the traffic. And now these uh, semi-autonomous cars are doing it as well. That's extraordinary. So, so potentially we can skip the traffic jam and, 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 and look ahead. We can kind of see into the future with these machines, you know. Yes, and that really depends uh, on how quickly and at scale these vehicles are introduced. If you have the single autonomous vehicle on a 10-lane Los Angeles highway and the highway is jammed, that autonomy is not going to do much for you. But if most people have autonomous vehicles and maybe if they don't own them and there's less of them on the road, uh, then you can see radical implications for traffic benefits. Amy, I'd like to bring you in here. From a, from a legal and ethical point of view, um, there are some concerns that come with driverless vehicles, aren't there? Could you tell us a little bit about some of those? Yeah, definitely. 
So from a legal point of view, what we're going to see is that the introduction of driverless vehicles introduces a range of new concerns. This might include in relation to motor vehicle ownership, road and transport regulation, you've got privacy, data access, cybersecurity, insurance, workplace health and safety. And then there are the contracting issues such as intellectual property ownership, then risk allocation in terms of indemnities, limitation of liability, and finally quality control. Australia has actually been really proactive in its response to the implementation of driverless vehicles from a regulatory perspective. And it has a stage program to review and reform, where appropriate, transport and related laws that are affected by the introduction of driverless vehicles. So the body, uh, the intergovernment agency overseeing the regulatory review is the National Transport Commission. And way back in 2016, they found that there are over 700 barriers in current legislation at a state and territory and commonwealth level to the deployment of driverless vehicles. And a lot of those just relate to the concept of legislation, just picking up the concept of a driver. Yeah. And then what does a driver become when you move to self-driving cars? Is it the, the vehicle itself? Does that become the driver? So a lot of the work that the NTC has been doing is around splitting out the concept of a driver um, to cover the concepts of a car that's driving itself um, versus a human-operated vehicle. And one of the interesting issues there is the intermediate stage of a car that's partially automated. So a car that can drive itself, but in certain circumstances, a human has to take back over control. Um, and the, in Australia, in the, in the regulations, they're referring to this as the fallback-ready user. So it's the concept of the vehicle gives you some kind of alert or warning and you need to take back control of the vehicle. And there's a fair bit of interest in that level of automation. Some of the manufacturers, such as Volvo, have made public statements about wanting to bypass that level of automation because there's inherent risks in requiring someone to take back control. As soon as you're not responsible for a vehicle, um, you, to, you can become complacent, etc. Um, however, it is the model that's used, for example, in, in, in aviation with... Um, as, a, as an appropriate model. So I think there's differing views as to whether that concept of um, having to have a person in a driver's seat of a vehicle ready to take back control is appropriate or not. But in the Australian laws that are developing, they're calling that the fallback ready user and they're looking at putting obligations directly on that person in that situation. Or if the vehicle is fully autonomous, it'd be on the entity that's responsible for the automated driving system. And they're calling that the automated driving system entity. Yeah, it's uh, it's challenging this one, isn't it? Because what we're talking about here is liability, yeah. uh, and where where you draw the line between who is responsible. Um, Amy, do you want to just give us a bit of your take on that? Yeah, it's an incredibly important question that regulators and others are grappling with. And what we're seeing is that while the shift to driverless vehicles promises to increase road safety, a goal of zero harm is unlikely to be achieved in the immediate future. So really significantly reduced harm is a more likely achievable goal. Particularly as Dave mentioned during this transitional phase where there are mixed fleets of fully driverless and then semi-automated vehicles on public roads, the increased potential for accidents is still a real risk. And we've seen from the accidents involving the Tesla Model S operating with their level two autopilot system and also the Uber fatality that occurred last year that the public will have a significant outcry if there is an incident involving what is an automated or driverless vehicle. So there is a significant amount of attention being focused on this to make sure that the regulation is right for who is termed liable. Under the existing framework for motor vehicles, the liability for motor vehicle accidents is complex. What we're seeing is that it'll be the driver at fault that's liable for any personal injury, death, property damage that they cause. 
and then the driver or their insurer will be in the position that they need to seek to apportion any liability with, say, the vehicle manufacturer, the seller or repairer if the accident was caused or contributed to by a defect or failure in the vehicle. But as Dave mentioned, as the driving functions become increasingly automated, we will see a tipping point where the responsibility shifts from the driver to the party responsible for the automated driving system, and that will be the automated driving system entity, who up until the point where humans, where a human controls the acceleration, deceleration, steering part of the driving task, they current um, viewers that they will retain proper control and liability, but where that shifts to the vehicle, then that will be the one that will be liable in the primary instance. Michael, if I reflect on this, it's, it's like so many of the challenges that we see with, with technology now, which is that the technology is kind of moving so fast that it can outpace regulators and lawmakers and, and, and government and so on, would you say? Yeah, so the rapid pace of technology development is a universal challenge. I think as reassurance, we should remember that many, but not all of the issues uh, that we're trying to address in autonomous vehicles have been addressed to some extent in terms of other industries. Like David mentioned, uh, aerospace is widely used. Uh, it's not an exact copy of the problems that we encounter in autonomous, uh, in autonomous vehicles, uh, but there is a lot of similarity. The primary challenge, although regulation uh, is an area of concern, I guess the time frame on changing that, as I understand it, is not 20 or 30 years. Uh, there are other key players in this area, like government, who are trying to make uh, 20, 30 year plus uh, infrastructure investment decisions. And it can be very challenging and often frustrating when you really can't predict exactly what's going to happen, especially over such a long time frame. Uh, the best you can probably do is provide a range of scenarios and the sort of milestones or markers that you might look for in terms of the technology progressing or not progressing that will indicate which one of those is likely to come true. And that's exactly right, Michael. As you mentioned, what government is really focusing on is creating something that's flexible and will be able to move with the technology, but to make sure they're not caught to the point where they're actually behind the technology and then trying to catch up with introducing regulation. And in addition to the regulatory aspect, what we're seeing is that Australia's roads and transport infrastructure is really developed for use of vehicles driven by humans. So that requires signs, traffic lights, lane markings, pedestrian crossings to enable the safe and quick flow of traffic. But then once you remove the human driver from the equation, the physical landscape of Australia's roads will fundamentally change, so much so that it may be actually unrecognisable by today's standards. And it will be an incredibly important, mission critical in fact, for governments to remain aware of the technological advancements when they are trying to future-proof our cities. Let's just go back to the question of liability again, David. I'm interested, if I think about this from an insurer's point of view, this is kind of the grey area that we're sort of uh, talking about here is quite challenging, isn't it? Uh, where does all this leave insurers? The initial reaction can be, well, um, automated vehicles are going to get rid of all motor vehicle accidents in the long term and therefore they hurt the insurance industry. But I think the reality is, and we've had a reasonable level of engagement with the insurance sector around this, um, that there is good opportunities for them in the in the medium term around new policies, new risks. Um, the interaction between cyber risk and motor vehicle risk is a big one, um, and just dealing with higher levels of automation in vehicles and how they 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 ensure those those vehicles. So I think in the very long term, when you may get rid of motor vehicle accidents, then it does impact a number of different sectors. So motor vehicle repair um, sector as well. Um, it's on a journey to becoming a more technology driven sector than pure. 
um, mechanical. But yeah, in terms of insurance, there's always a place for risk and product. So there's good opportunities still in that sector. Um, but a lot of work to be done in lining up the liability and insurance piece together. So I think in the UK, they've they've led the way in that in that respect with passing some laws in the last couple of years to enable trials and, and make sure that in an insurance situation, people are no worse off if an, if an accident involves a, an autonomous vehicle than they would be with a driven vehicle. And that's the guiding principle that the regulators are all looking at is to make sure people are no worse off. And a lot of it is for the governments and also the manufacturers is around um, building up that co- public confidence in the technology. And so we're seeing lots of trials around the world and some of them are more driven around getting people used to the concept of hopping in a minibus that drives itself around a controlled environment and seeing that it's okay, there doesn't need to be someone behind the steering wheel. So there's a, a PR piece in all this too to build up confidence. Um, and I think it's also interesting, there's a there's an ethical question long-term with, um, back to Michael's earlier point about how perfect does the technology need to be to be deployed on the roads. There are some views that, you want to get it as perfect as possible, but if you wait too long, how many lives have been lost by then human error, um, human driver causes, and should you um, deploy a little bit earlier but run the risk of of injuries and fatalities arising from self-driven vehicles? So there's some interesting ethical questions there as well. Yes, so I think the important question is that because the actions of driverless vehicles will depend on information received from data, and not relate to the individual moral responses from the humans who will become full passengers in driverless vehicles. Controversy has emerged over the ethics of how to program these vehicles and the decisions a driverless vehicle will make in the event of a harmful or dangerous situation. And it's being considered by a number of countries and industry players. Germany, for example, has introduced and developed the world's first ethical guidelines for driverless vehicles, which sets out 20 guiding principles. And these guidelines specify, for example, that human life must always have top priority over property damage, damage to animals, and that in the event of unavoidable accidents, making a distinction between people based on personal features such as gender, physical appearance, and mental constitution is impermissible. But what the guidelines don't do is address the burning question of whether a driverless vehicle will be ethically programmed to risk injury or death to the person in the vehicle if it might, for example, save five lives. And this is going to be a very important question for the successful deployment and acceptance of driverless vehicles and their widespread adoption if it's going to be achieved because users are going to have to have their trust gained from driverless vehicles, companies and manufacturers. In order to do so, we're probably going to need to see the provision of appropriate ethical, security and privacy assurances and these need to be openly communicated to the public. There's lots of work ahead, isn't there? From a government point of view, let's think perhaps about the Australian government for a moment, David. Um, How much progress has the sort of federal government made in terms of paving the way for the introduction of of driverless vehicles? And and perhaps what's next on the agenda for them, do you think? Well, as Amy mentioned before, um, they've been leading the way in the regulatory front. So there's a global survey that KPMG do about readiness for autonomous vehicles and we actually in the, in the current year ranked number one in terms of regulatory readiness so this four-year program of getting our laws ready has has paved the way for australia to be ahead of the curve in terms of having its laws ready if if the technology does speed up again because <laughs> essentially it was it was coming pretty fast and then i think in the last couple of years there's been a bit of a slowdown in the in the predictions of how quickly it's going to be widespread on the roads so in terms of the laws they're, they're readying themselves well um, we're sort of middle of the pack in terms of technology readiness, um, communications, technology, um, 5G, etc. We're ranked okay. 
uh, some of the challenges we have in Australia is just the size of the country and the and the standard of our roads. So there can be challenges in rural environments, for example, um, with the quality of roads and quality of line markings and so on that may be challenges for um, autonomous vehicles in Australia, but that's part of a broader piece of just the quality of our roads on such a big country with a smaller population compared to um, places in, in Europe and Asia and America, for example. So... Um, They've got to know where they need to spend their money and the challenge there is there's various technologies that are developing and they don't know where do you need to spend the money. There's been no point in going around all of Australia and suddenly putting fresh line markings on all roads and then finding in three years' time that the leading AV technologies that are coming onto the market don't rely on that at all. So I think that's one of the challenges is there's um, there's a lot of work being done on complementing road infrastructure with the cars that are coming, but I think that's the tension point is working out where do you get the most bang for buck. Um, there's also some issues in Australia with unique flora and fauna such as kangaroos um, which are quite hard to detect because they sit stationary and then move at high speed but equally we as drivers struggle with that as well and <laughs> that's why there's lots of inf- incidents involving kangaroos but Michael might be able to better talk to some of those interactions between the technology and the, and the roadside infrastructure. In North America I think the problem are moose rather than kangaroos but they don't have the same movement patterns as kangaroos. I guess one way of um, navigating this whole landscape is to uh, be a little bit cynical and follow the money. So most of the bigger commercial interests in this space who are investing all these billions of dollars, uh, they want to maximize their market size. They want to minimize the barriers to widespread deployability. So they really are aiming for technology that requires minimal, if any, modifications to let the cars roam free and safely. Whether they'll get there is a whole other question and there are some fallback situations in terms of adding infrastructure to compensate for the technology's shortcomings. Uh, You mentioned before about PR and getting people used to autonomous vehicles. Uh, I get to travel around the world a lot uh, in this uh, sphere and the difference between, say, seeing an autonomous vehicle in Paris where my Uber driver almost crashed because he was leaning out the window trying to take a photo of the autonomous vehicle and parts of California where my Uber driver doesn't care that we've just driven past four different autonomous vehicles and trucks from four different companies. Uh, So even in a few years, certain parts of the population can get very used to having the technology around. The moral and ethical issues are a, a very big one. One of the sort of pragmatic limitations right now is that most of the cars are not really able to reliably distinguish between different ethnicities or ages, uh, especially at long range of pedestrians. So practically, it's not even a problem that the cars can really currently address. They're just seeing some sort of person walking across the road. And on the insurance front, I guess data is a key pillar across all of these transformative technologies and autonomous vehicles is no different. And one of the technology opportunities, I guess, around insurance and vehicles is in this interim period where maybe the cars aren't fully autonomous. Uh, there is a lot of insights being gained through trying to develop autonomous vehicles on what makes for a safe driver. I guess a lot of current insurance or recent insurance policies have been based around just the number of incidents you've had, which is a very crude measure. Some of the new policies have some data individualization based on your background and your history and where you live. Uh, You can imagine the next generation of that where the cars have anonymized direct access to your driving habits, for example, and you'd have to manage that carefully, but they might be able to make for a very accountable insurance policy, which very much represents your actual real risk profile as a driver. 
Amy, we've mentioned a couple of times uh, the issue of privacy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, the biggest issues around privacy that business leaders and others need to consider? So because driverless vehicles will be driven by data, some of the major legal issues concern privacy, data and cybersecurity risks. Tracking data isn't new. Your mobile phone already maps your location and records significant data about your internet use. But what we're seeing with driverless vehicles is that particular privacy issues arise because they will necessarily need to track, generate, collect, share, store an enormous volume of data about the locations of users, time, duration of a trip, passenger history, seat occupancy, and then even potentially phone and social media use. And what this means is that it has the capacity to result in significantly higher opportunities for data linking and identification of an individual, which raises privacy concerns. A driverless vehicle will literally be a supercomputer on wheels. Intel suggests that a single vehicle driving for eight hours will generate and consume approximately 40 terabytes of data. And then if you multiply this potentially by the billions of driverless vehicles on the roads, you're seeing a huge amount of data. Existing privacy laws work really well where they concern a single data set at a particular point in time. So they work well, for example, contact lists, medical records, but they're arguably not fit for purpose or sufficient to protect data in a connected transport ecosystem. The reality also is that driverless vehicles will be driven by imperfect code and not humans, which can't be overlooked in the excitement for innovation. It's also not uncommon currently for a car's automated headlights not to function as planned or for software upgrades for mobile phones or computer systems to have bugs. But this is going to be an even bigger issue when it's a vehicle that are driving us around the cities. So a number of technological and cybersecurity issues arise in relation to driverless vehicles, such as software crashes, communication failures, and hackers and cyber terrorists. So policies and mechanisms to manage the safety and security risks will need to be developed by government, and IT security will also need to be addressed in road transport legislation and vehicle standards, along with new laws to enable investigation and prosecution of offences where driverless vehicle technology is either hacked or disrupted. Michael, we've talked a lot about technology and we've talked a lot about legislation and and regulation and and those sorts of things in relation to driverless vehicles. At the heart of the issue, of course, is human beings and human beings being required to embrace and accept change. Uh, What's the role uh, of education in all of this in terms of educating the wider population Uh, in terms of understanding the risks, I suppose, but also coming to accept driverless vehicles as part of a new tomorrow. An informed public is a critical success piece in any introduction of new technology and autonomous vehicles are no different. If you think about our understanding as a society of vehicles for the last 50 or 100 years, uh, we have an intuitive understanding, even if we're not technical experts. If we're driving down the highway and something goes bang, we know a tire's exploded. If it slows gradually to a halt, we know we've run out of fuel or our battery's probably gone flat. But if we're in an autonomous vehicle and it's sitting out, front, out in front of our garage and refusing to go into the garage, unless you have an intuitive understanding of how these technologies work, you might not realize it's because you've got one of your bikes hung up on the back wall of the garage and it thinks there's a vulnerable pedestrian that you're just about to run over. So universities and and indeed all the key players have a very significant role in informing people in a responsible way about how these technologies will work and their pros and cons. 
and we do a lot of this as a university where in doing this with kids as young as two obviously you have to tailor the content uh, to the particular audience uh, but if we can get everyone to that general intuitive understanding uh, of how autonomous vehicle technology works and what the pros and cons are uh, society is going to be very well mobilized to equip uh, respond and make best use of these technologies under whatever time frame they roll out in beautifully put david anything to write there just that the other simple driver will be that cool technology that people like will drive the change <laughs> so it's the same as smartphones so as soon as you're you know, in a city environment you see the vehicle next to you and the person's on their laptop and the car's driving itself you're going to want one of those so i think the rapid escalation will come when you get initial deployment and it's a much better solution and everyone moves to it and that's the big tipping point that we're hoping to see at some point in the future predictions a couple of years ago where that was going to be 2020 2021 it doesn't look like that's going to happen but billions of dollars are being spent in silicon valley and other areas and we don't know sitting here in brisbane whether um, that's going to happen in the next couple of years or in five years or in 10 years but um, the prediction is that it will happen at some point and in terms of envy and the coolness factor driving it, it's not going to be looking over probably and watching the person working on their laptop. It'll be seeing the person who's asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, Michael, let's imagine for a moment that we've got some of the world's top CEOs in the room from multinationals uh, around the globe. What advice would you have for them today in terms of getting ahead of driverless vehicles, uh, harnessing the opportunities and being you know, able to uh, mitigate the risks, I suppose? I guess my advice would come in, in two stages. The first is it can be very tempting to see that there's an incredible amount of hype around all of these transformative technologies, especially autonomous vehicles. And because a lot of it is unjustified hype, to dismiss the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, and even if uh, 10% of the core behind all this hype is true, it will be transformative uh, in the long term. So see through the hype, but don't dismiss it completely. Uh, the second thing, I guess, is maintaining a very up-to-date understanding of what the key issues are in all of these technologies that would shape autonomous vehicles. One of the challenges is that a lot of this technology is uh, proprietary and some of it's fairly zealously protected behind closed doors so the more you can get third parties experts from academia consulting the legal sector to give you advice that's up to date on what is happening and to continue to get that advice at maybe six month intervals because that's how fast some of these th things can change uh, the better prepared you are to both plan and react to these changes when they come Amy, any words for business leaders out there who are scratching their heads over driverless vehicles? Yeah, definitely. Look, Michael was right. For business leaders, collaboration has to be behind the agenda in order to making a driverless future a reality. And this might be in terms of collaborating with other companies in the driverless vehicle space, and as Michael mentioned, academics, lawyers, consultants, uh, to understand both driverless vehicles but also different forms of automated transport as we lean towards a mobility as a service future. And then in step with that, Given this increased potential for knowledge and data sharing between companies and also governments, a high priority for companies really needs to be to build in structures from an early stage covering issues such as IP protection, privacy, data governance, and that will be incredibly important in securing their place in the driverless future. David, anything to add? 
Uh, just echo all of those sentiments and also I think the companies that are doing this well are looking at um, how their businesses will evolve, um, not necessarily um, staying in the past in terms of what their traditional service delivery might be and looking at the future in 10 and 20 years time and saying what's going to be the future customer needs and how can we fulfill that and what do we have that's valuable in that space, whether it's data, which um, everyone's looking to gather up as much data as they can and then work out ways to best refine it and then get some monetary value out of it. Um, probably also being um, sceptical and cynical about where, you know, if government wants to take some of that data back and you're relying purely on, on data as your as your valuable commodity, um, just being aware of the risks associated with um, data and, and desires around the globe to give some of the um, possession of data back to individuals rather than having that sitting with corporations and how they're going to monetize that. So so where is that money flow coming in the long term for your business? Um, and yeah, collaborating with different different um, different companies and seeing what the opportunities are out there in that exciting new future and, and never forgetting that for businesses, you know, where is that capital flow going to come from? Where is your revenue stream um, in this new future? That was Professor Michael Milford from the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision and the Queensland University of Technology in conversation with Minter Ellison's David Pearce and Amy Dunphy. For information about these issues and more, visit minterellison.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you have any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on social media or via the contact page of our website. You may also be interested in our episode on artificial intelligence, where we explore the latest developments, the opportunities the technology presents, and some critical ethical and legal considerations. To hear that and all our current episodes, head over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And subscribe to make sure that you catch all of our future episodes too. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye for now. (laughs) 